times I've done one, so we'll have a Thanksgiving sermon, a, a sermon themed around being thankful. And I want to share with you something. It's a true story. I shared this actually in the first year of our launch back in 2010, but it's something that sort of comes to mind anytime I engage in the purchase of a pair of sneakers or see a pair of Nike Air Jordans, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, about a month ago, I got a new pair of shoes. I'm wearing them now. They're a pair of Adidas. They sort of brought me back to my New York childhood. But I saw, for whatever reason, that the shoe, which was super popular when I was a kid, the Air Jordan is sort of making a comeback. They're bringing back old styles. It's a Nike sneaker, and it's sort of become pretty popular again in our world. And it's funny how there really is nothing new under the sun, and especially when it comes to like fashion and culture, a lot of the things we value today are somewhat cyclical. Like even my glasses, uh, they're sort of trendy today. I wear them because I have a big head, a bowling ball head, and I need large oversized glasses. But this is the stuff that my uncles and my father were wearing in the 50s in New York. It wasn't a trend, it was sort of what they issued people. And so this idea of culture and fashion and style, a lot of times it is repetitive. And I saw and sort of had a first-hand account with this last month when I bought these shoes and knew I wanted to share this story again. Because every time I buy a pair of shoes, deep down in my heart, I, it's ironic, more than almost anything in life, I'm really thankful for them. And this is due to a little, but an incredibly life-changing incident that took place in my early teens, teens excuse me, between my father and I. And at that time uh, in New York, this this new shoe came out. It was called an Air Jordan, and it sort of like encapsulated the mind of every 16-year-old in the city because uh, Jordan was a really popular ba uh, basketball player. We were devout Knicks fans, but nonetheless, you had to have respect for that guy because he was like the most amazing basketball player ever. And as is true to form, they began marketing his name. And these were super popular shoes. They were $130 to be exact. That's what they, co they, they cost in the late 80s and early 90s. You have to remember, in that time frame, $130 in today's economy is like $1.5 million. That's about how much that stuff costs to my father. Incredibly expensive. And I've never been like materialistic. Uh, and, I, and by that, I simply, I don't mean that it's bad to want stuff. But obviously stuff has a, has a perspective in the economy of God. But for some reason, I wanted to have those sneakers. It's one of the true like childhood desires I had. And I just knew the first time I saw them that I wanted them. And eventually, after coercing my father for weeks, I convinced him to buy them for me. And you have to understand, this was not an easy commitment for him because I, I've shared this before. I grew up in a, a single-income, working, poor family uh, with a father who never even graduated from high school. He was a middle school dropout, and he started working. That was just the environment that he was raised in, and he had to work to eat. And so money was always tight. My parents did a really good job of providing us a quality childhood. In fact, I didn't even know about half this stuff until I was older. But they, they did a good job of, of really, really helping us along for nothing. But when it came to lavish expenditures like this, they were just not normally on our docket. And so because of this, my brother and I, this is very true, each year we were given one pair of shoes at the beginning of the school year, and we had to make them last the whole school year. I did a much better job of making them last a year than my brother. That's true to this day, but that's the way that it worked. And so true to form, when the first week of school rolled around, after tons of coercion with my father, we went to what was a local mall. They called them bazaars in New York for whatever reason, called Caesars Bay. And it was right on the water. If you took the, the neighborhood that I lived in all the way to essentially the, the bay connecting to the Atlantic in Brooklyn, the southern part of Brooklyn, this big, big box mall was there. And by big box, I simply mean it was a big store with a bunch of little outlet stores. It was sort of like the Daytona Mall with, with merchandise. And we went into a sneaker store to buy these Jordans. I went there fully thinking my father was going to buy them for me. Also fully knowing today, not as much then, about the ridiculous cost of those things. 
And what happened is, is my dad, when he saw that $1.5 million 1985 price tag, or 1990, whenever it was, he completely got the deer in the headlight syndrome, and he just couldn't do it. He, would, he refused to buy the shoes. And it was utterly embarrassing for me. You know, in that age, that's like a world-ending issue in your life. And my dad and I had a pretty spirited father and son discussion, which is code, our students are not here anymore, which means I started arguing with my dad in public, which was totally wrong, but that's sort of part of the teenage years as we do that at times. And what ended up happening there was like my dad is so, sort of an impenetrable force. Like when his mind is made up, it's made up. You're better off saving your breath and you know, Facebooking it. You'll get more attention there than talking to my dad. That's the way that it works. And so two, that day, two things happened. I went home with deeply hurt feelings. I really thought like, man, I don't have these shoes. My life is over, you know? And I also got a $40 pair of Nikes, which was like $750,000 in today's current currency. And so I don't know why, but I just know anytime I'm engaged with shoes, that story replicates itself in my head every single time. And why I share it with you today is because it's sort of, it brings a rhythm. In that, in that day, I was sort of kind of arrogant and a teenager, but today it has helped me to, to be thankful in what are almost small areas of life for many of us, but they're really significant areas of life because in the small areas of life, if we can exhibit thankfulness, it likely means that we have a rhythm of thankfulness in our life, which is what I want to talk about today. I'm very thankful that today, it's not super easy, but I can afford to much more easily than my father put shoes on my feet. Although somewhat ironically, I never spend more than 50 bucks on a pair of shoes and get years of use out of them. They can be like uh, souvenirs. I keep them so pristine. It's just, that's my dad's voice in my head. And that event, as stupid and silly as it seemed then, really had a cosmic shaping on my life. And here's why. It helped me to realize a larger sentiment that we as a society really hold to. It's the idea that you'll never fully be thankful for something that you have until you recognize what it feels like to be without it. There is sort of this, this scale that happens where sometimes being without something really can cause us to be more deeply grateful for something we have. For example, when you have a best friend who moves away or a loved one who passes away. I'm not saying you didn't appreciate those relationships, but I am saying when you are without something, sometimes it, it's just more meaningful. This past year, my last grandparent died three, three months ago from cancer. And I can tell you, it caused me to rethink the, the 40 years I had with grandparents. It changes everything. I loved my grandparents, but there's a different level of thankfulness sort of increasing in me because of the realization that I, they're no longer with me. That is a cultural sentiment. It's an emotional reality for many of us. And so today, we're going to look at a teaching from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it is a timely text because it reminds us as we prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving, this is our week for Thanksgiving, that in Jesus, we have much to be thankful for. And just like the cultural sentiment I just mentioned, the verses we're looking at today show us that one of the ways you can and, and will more fully appreciate God's grace in your life through Jesus, it really begins by recognizing what your life looks like without him. Whether you are here today without him or have had a season in your life, all of us had a season without Jesus. This is why we become believers. No matter where you are in the journey of faith, my desire here is to help us to wrap our heads and our hearts around the idea of what it means to be like, uh, to be without Jesus. Because I don't know that you can fully appreciate what it means to have Jesus and the throne of your heart unless you recognize what Paul says here in Ephesians. He's giving us a stark reminder of these two places that we find ourselves in. Loving him and being loved by him or really being at a place where we have no metric, no place for him in our lives. And I think by discussing for a few moments this morning the reality of what life is like without Christ can really be helpful for us to be more thankful at a time when we, we, we tell thankfulness of what it means to actually have him. 
I don't want to take him for granted. And this is why the first truth that Scripture teaches us here, that Paul communicates from Ephesians 2, we'll read the first three verses and look at the second set on the back end of my message, is a simple truth, but it's a profound one. It's a cultural sentiment that really is rooted in a biblical reality. To be truly thankful, to truly be thankful for the life Jesus has given you, you must first understand what it means to have been dead, okay? This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians. There is no... There is no deep understanding or gratitude for life in Christ until we recognize what it means to have been redeemed from death. And I want to read to you what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Again, this is for you. He's speaking to all people, especially those here that are in Christ, the Ephesian church. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is a past tense idea. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the enemy. We'll talk about him in a moment. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he talks about this contrarian attitude. Like there is a spirit amongst those trying to be obedient to God. And then there is a spirit in those who are not obedient to God. And each spirit, if you will, takes us down a different pathway in life. And then he goes on to say, leveling the playing field, which is why we've talked about grace and justification and sanctification over these past weeks. Understanding who is the author, finisher, and, and the, the person who founds our faith and completes it. All of us also lived among them at one time. There's no room for pride here gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, verse 1 reminds us of why it's worth the sacrifice we make to follow Jesus and build the body of Christ. It's why it's important to understand the, the whys, no pun intended, behind our life and our faith. And this is where I think in our current world, we're so consumed, again, no pun intended, with consuming information that I find there's less and less space in life to actually reflect on the whys of what we consume. We live in a world where we are inundated by ideas and thoughts of what we are supposed to do. Even in the church, I say this regularly, I'm talking to you about some ideas and truths that are really recommended that we imbibe and live out. But when you leave here, and maybe if you're checking Twitter right now, you're getting hit from this from every single angle. And more than ever, I'm convinced that the whys of the faith matter. Why do we do what we do? And here, Paul gives us some pretty strong understandings about why it is important for us to be faithful men and women who follow Jesus, build his body through the local church. We know his truth, we care for those in Jesus, and we labor for those who are without him. Because he teaches us here that without Christ, all people, no matter, well off, no matter how well off they believe themselves to be, they actually are dead in their transgressions and their sins. And according to this passage, they are subject to God's righteous wrath because of it. Now in these verses, the word transgressions Sins carries the idea that God has drawn a boundary line for humanity, for all of us. And the idea of transgressing is that we, on a regular basis, step over that line. That's what a transgression essentially is. And the word sins, which is arguably the most misunderstood word in all of Christianity, it carries this idea that God has eternally had a set of relational standards. This is how I define sin. I like to anyways. He desired all people to live in. God has set the universe up in a certain way. And all sins really root themselves in relational violation is the way you can describe it. It's, a, it's a, a missing of the mark in how God chooses to love us, not him missing the mark, but in the way we reciprocate that love. And the same is true with the relationships we have in our peer circles, husbands, wives, friends, families, other Christians, wherever we're at. The, the sin is always rooted in a relational fracture, a misrepresentation or a misappropriation of an idea or a thought in somebody else's life. God has a, de a design for you, will, if you will, for the way he wants us to live. And we regularly miss the mark. So these relational, spiritual, and emotional standards are what I like to say God's bullseye for, bullseye for humanity. 
the perfect way he desired us to love him and each other. And this is because, simply put, when we live at them, or with them at the center of our lives and our hearts, they tend to honor God, and they can become a catalyst for us to flourish in life. Think about this. Read today when you go home some of the one another's in Scripture. Read some of the ways that Scripture commands us to, te- to treat other people. And think about the byproducts of that, especially if you're in a troubling relationship right now or you know somebody who is. There is a certain fruit that can come out of living like this in the depths of our heart, understanding the whys, and then, and then living this out tangibly with our fingers in our hands. As, as kind of relevant as that idea is, as important and necessary as these standards are for humanity, Paul says here that until Jesus breathes his redemptive life into us, we just sang this, right? We are able to, to be alive again in areas where we were once dead. As important and necessary as these standards are for humanity, he tells us that until Jesus breathes his redemptive life into us, we will largely be dead to them. And by dead to them, that doesn't mean that we don't have sensitivities to any of this stuff, but we don't have the root of where the ultimate sensitivity comes from for the Christian. In other words, the why is missing. And consequently, every injustice, evil, wrongdoing in this world can be traced back to this truth, to a, a form of deadness. Paul further explains this by telling us There are three oppressive influences in our world that want to keep us dead like this. Not only, and I promise, work with me here for a moment, this is an important thing to grasp. Not only is Paul clear about the fact that there is deadness in the world, he says there are actually forces, there is a spirit trying to keep us dead. The first is sort of an obvious one, the ways of the world. Remember, the world is not always a negative term in Scripture, but simply put in this tense, what world means is the, the ideas and the thoughts of the world that are opposed to the ways of God the relational standards of God, the values of God. The ruler, the second thing, the ruler of the kingdom of the air or the evil influences of the devil, that's the title that the the prince of darkness gets. He's the ruler of nothing, essentially, but he has an authority in this age that can really be challenging. And before we go into, you know, we just had Halloween and before we start deriving a theology of the devil from it, you know, that popular Steven Spielberg movie that was here, the word Satan or Satan is simply a Hebrew noun that means adversary. And so the idea of the Satan, of the Satan, is that there is also a spirit in this world that seeks to keep us away from the things of God, from the life God wants us to have. That's a real issue today, a a, a principality that is above us, right? And uh, lastly, the self-centered desires of our own hearts. So he kind of covers the whole gambit here, what the Bible calls the flesh. Sometimes we can keep ourselves away from life in Jesus. That's the point of my Philippians series about oftentimes when we are without joy, it's because we're we're plugging the well up. We can do things at times that deaden us to God, even those of us following him. And so to be dead in your transgressions simply means a person's heart will be more influenced by the values and systems of the present world rather than God's kingdom values of the world to come. On the scale of the world in the negative sense and God, his economy, what happens is we tend to give a little more credence to to the weight that comes from the voices that are not from God. And this teaching says that without Christ, the great commandments of humanity will not be love God and love love neighbor, you know, as yourself. They likely migrate into this thing of love self, love self more, rather than love God, love others. And the byproduct of this hard attitude is a relational violation. We often live in a world largely committed to building itself up without a reference to God's ways. I'm not even, if you know me well, you know I'm not against the world. I actually believe that we are here to help bring flourishment to it. I love the world in the sense that God's given us a place to, to labor in it. So don't hear me kind of going old school and fundamental here. We have a role in the world. Christ transforming culture is where we're at. But I'm also telling you that it's not hard at times to see there are places in our world where the, the preservation of self trumps 
the benefit of others. And so sometimes in small ways, what we live in is contrary to God's ways, and at other times, it's totally foreign. There are places in the scripture where God reminds us that we are sort of visiting on this earth. We're aliens to a certain sense. We're, we're foreign residents in a world that will one day fade away. Now, why, why is this important to point out on Thanksgiving week? You're like, dude, I just wanted like hot cocoa and t- turkey, and we're talking about sin. I promise, hold on with me for here for a moment. You'll never appreciate what we can be thankful for unless we understand the challenge that Paul highlights here. In fact, he doesn't even get, he doesn't get to Thanksgiving without pointing this out. Because the natural inclination of the human heart is almost always to turn inward on ourselves. That's what happens more naturally the further we distance ourselves from God. It explains why so many people in ways big and small often feel like their lives are more important than other people's lives. This is no joke. I've shared with you a lot about the challenges I have on driving, driving on Dunlawton Avenue. And uh, yesterday, oh, excuse me, Friday, no exaggeration, I was almost hit by two different cars, essentially you know, making changes in lanes that they should not have done. One was a Corvette. It was kind of crazy. I was just plugging along, driving by the Target, and this dude pulled out in front of me. I was doing 50 miles an hour, and I had to hit my horn because I was like two inches away from hitting a Corvette, and he just hammered on the gas and drove away. And by God's grace, I actually wasn't angry there. I was more like shooken for a moment, but really sitting here and thinking like, what causes a person to just be okay with ending my life to get out of the Target line? What causes somebody to do that? Target's not that bad of a store. I don't shop there, but it's not a bad place, right? What happens here is this. It can be seen in the people who sort of have no, they have no regard for other people in big and small ways. It's why, trust me, try to get a turkey this week at Walmart. You better have some hockey gear on, all right? It's going to be on. That's the way that it works. I mean, we're all acting like there ain't 10 trillion turkeys in the cooler. But for some reason, we think if I don't shove grandma out of the way and get that turkey, I'm going to have a problem. And that's what retail starts looking like. For whatever reason, these urgency zones develop. It's why you have, you know, in a more cynical sense, you have guys like Adolf Hitler. You have the megalomaniacs of the world who, who have that power and then really start hurting people in, I mean, in, in completely detrimental ways. The tyrannical realities of what we see oftentimes around the world. Everything kind of finds its root back to this, big and small. It can trace its root to this deadness of heart. And I want to share with you a quote, very influential guy in my life named John Stott. He's recently passed away about six years ago, give or take a little bit. He was an Anglican scholar and pastor. And he wrote something very interesting about this very text, and I want to share it with you. It'll be behind me. He's, this is his take on what's happening and what Paul's talking about here with this deadness. It's sort of the symptoms of what happens. He says, wherever people are being like dehumanized by other people, through oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by rampant materialism, poverty, hunger, unemployment, bullying, crime, abuse, racial discrimination, or by any, form of, any other form of injustice, there we can see the subhuman values of the age of this world. Their influence is pervasive because many people tend not to have a mind of their own. And he's not saying here that people are ignorant. He's just saying we live in a stream of the world constantly speaking to us. And what happens is rather than thinking outside of that form, they are subliminally like subordinated to it. Rather, he says, they surrender to the pop culture of television and the glossy cover of magazines. It is a form of cultural bondage. And to varying degrees, we were all like this until Jesus liberated us. We were all drifting along the stream of this world's ideas of what we were told life was supposed to look like. A couple of months ago in my community group, we were talking about this very idea, the idea of God sort of regenerating us. And in the Christian world, that typically is a term we use for salvation, meaning like God has made us whole in him again, regenerated us, you know, brought us to life. But I think when you think about your walk in Jesus, regeneration and the sanctification process are sort of similar. The idea of God making anything new to you is a regeneration. 
It's a place where God is beginning to, to breathe life into an area of your life where there is deadness. It's when he begins to make you mindful of what Stott is talking about here. We sort of wake up to a certain degree from some of the present realities we live in, and we start seeing realities from the ways of God or in the ways of God. So on the surface level, this might seem like some high-end Christian philosophy. However, I promise you, if you don't have this rhythm in your life, you're missing some of what Jesus wants to do in your life. If you are in Jesus and have experienced this, you know firsthand exactly what Stott is describing here. You don't even need an illustration, although I'll give you one. There's nothing high-end about this, because over time what happens is God makes this a reality in our life. He begins to have us swim in a different direction, in the stream of the world, in the negative sense. He begins to change the values of our hearts. He moves us from deadness to life. Thus, the reason we can be thankful. And this is why I think about your own life. Those of you who were once opposed to the truths of Jesus are now deeply committed to them. This was my story. I was 21 when I became a Christian. I don't want to say I was essentially against the things of God, but I certainly was not for them. I was not pursuing a career in the church. That's not where I was heading. I had a totally different trajectory. I was trying to pursue a career in law enforcement. And then God woke my mind up to some stuff and changed a lot in me. And this began by me really wrestling with the reality of who he was and what he wanted for my life. Changed the pathway. Some of you have same stories. You're adversarial. You're hostile to the things of the faith. I've talked with a great many of you. You come with challenges to the faith. But then God does something in your heart and you're different. He brings to life something that is sort of dead. Those who, you who maybe struggled with selfishness, you know, you, you have a place in your life where you are deeply committed to yourself. But if you are committed solely to yourself, God is going to put EKG paddles on that heart rhythm. He's either going to wake you up out of it or give you chest pains when you live in it too much. He's going to want to bring life out of that death because it is an anti-gospel rhythm. It's why once many of us, maybe we see this in the world today, power is not something or authority that is used to benefit others. It's sort of used to oppress others. God can change that in people and has in many of us. Think about selfishness with the, the holy trinity of what our world sees today, our time and our money and our resources. These are three things God asks regularly from us. Not because he needs more time or money or resources, but because these are the things we tend to want most in life. Yet we find that to follow Jesus, he says, this stuff has, has to be seated back to him in, in many ways. He's challenging the thread of our lives regularly. And many of you here are generous in this church and in our world and in your community. Maybe that's not been a rhythm in your whole life. Or maybe it's a growing rhythm. It's a sign of what we're talking about here. There's a place where deadness becomes life when we give God the space to work. Because Jesus has breathed light into our hearts. He's awakened our souls to the reality that there are people in our lives who suffer. There are people in our lives who are disconnected from God. There are 75 tags we have to help Spruce Creek Elementary this week or over this season. There are people who cannot have a Christmas the way we would like to have them, or the way we are maybe even accustomed to having them. There are needs. And part of growing in life is that over time, those three forces we just talked about, God gives us the ability to begin discerning the differences between who is working in our lives. We get a greater aptitude to discern the difference between the goodness of God and the evil of the enemy. And I will say this dogmatically, it's not just a mental discernment. There's an action required that comes after that, always. In the Christian faith, action is always required. That's the reality of our life in Jesus. There is no thanksgiving for the cross if Jesus just looks at the world and says, they're broken, let's have a turkey. That's not the way it works. God looks at the world, intervenes, and acts. And that is the posture we're called to live our lives after. The truth of God shapes our love for God's people and burdens us for the world we live in. 
Jesus frees us from the bondage of the self-centered desires of the flesh. He loves us deeply and enables us to selflessly love others like he first loved us. And here's the tension point. Here's where we make the shift this morning. As beautiful and freeing as this truth is to those of us who have experienced the reality, to those who are on the, the receiving end, we had someone in our lives who loved Jesus well and talked to us about him, labored in our lives on behalf of him. It changes things. You, you receive that and want to reciprocate. At least we should. For many of us in the faith, this is a freeing truth. At least it should be. It's a reality that has sort of reshaped us. It's your own sneaker story at the mall, right? Teachings like this, for some people, though, are a major sticking point for why they reject Christianity. They don't see a teaching like this and actually give thanks for it. They look at it and say, man, for the unbeliever, they just straight out reject it. And for the Christian, we reject it in more subtle ways. We can look at it and say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely alive in Jesus. I might, I might not have vitality signs for truth and mission, but I'm alive in Jesus. That's an improper paradigm. Those two things can't cohabitate. Because the more we know about Jesus, the more it should shape the hands for how we serve Jesus. The more it should penetrate the heart. At the root of this rejection is almost always a, review, a refusal to recognize where there is a deadness in life. Whether it's straight unbelief or just an unwillingness to grow in the grace of Christ. And the challenge here is that some people are not even remotely opening, open to examining this possibility of the truth in their lives. And this is where the problem is. This is sort of where our action step is. Because when you choose to stay dead like that, when you choose to not recognize this tension Paul speaks about here, it's going to rob you of the meaning and purpose God desires for you. It's actually going to impede your ability to be thankful, to give thanks for the greatest thing we can give thanks for. Because you'll never get to experience the type of change, the type of heart-deep life change Paul talks about here. You never make the jump from deadness to life. You never have the chance to experience what it means for God to lead you out of deadness on a daily basis and into the fullness of Christ. That's not the priority. If you're not at least willing to take an honest look at your own life, my life too, by examining the possibility that it could be true in some areas. What I'm saying is, is we have to be mindful and okay with the fact that we're probably all dead in some areas of our lives right now. Guaranteed. Unless your name is Jesus Christ, you are dead in some areas of your life, just like I am. There's no way that we cannot have areas God wants to work in our lives. And I don't say that in the judgmental tone. I say it in the like, we're in this together tone. And we should be okay with the fact that we have areas to grow in. And we should be wanting to invest in others and be invested in by others to grow in those areas. We're on the same team here when it comes to the way we grow in, in Jesus Christ. And looking at it that way actually makes a ground, a fertile ground for growth. So think of it like this. Have you ever been in a situation where you were lost on the road but refused to admit it? Now, if you're under 30, I'm 41 now, but if you're under 30, you're like, what does he mean? I have GPS, right? I've had it forever. But there was a day, I can remember, when we had, a, we had to have a Rand McNally uh, map in my car because I am terrible with directions. I've gotten better as I've gotten older. That's probably me being really um, too congratulatory of myself. I, li I like to think I am. I get where I need to go when my wife sits next to me. But apart from that, I'm like distracted looking at stores and driving around. And I can remember uh, regularly when I lived in New Orleans before this, get, I got lost a lot because the, the grid that the New York City grid is sort of like numbers and letters up and down. You can't get lost unless you can't read, right? But L Louisiana was very different. Everything was built around waterways. And so you would think a street would go where it should go, and then it didn't. You'd end up at like a levee. And I constantly got lost. And it got even worse. Uh, there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, Gulf State culture around Louisiana where I would drive into areas of Mississippi because we had folks that had family there and I'd have to do funerals and all that stuff. And I remember one time, again, no GPS, I had to do a funeral in Mississippi. It was about a 55-minute drive. 
And I got really lost driving out there because I did not have, you know, Siri speaking into my head. And typically when I speak back to Siri, she never understands anything I say. It's a one-way one conversation. But the directions are usually pretty accurate. And so I learned very quickly how challenging it is to have a, a problem with directions. Now, I've never been good with them. And it got even more complicated in the more rural areas of the country because there's a lot of insider instructions in the rural areas of the country. They'll say things like, hey, after you get off 57, there's a cow patch and an oak tree. Take a left there. And, you know, there's like two cow patches. And what's an oak tree? What, there's like three different kinds of oak trees, I think, at least. And it's very easy to get lost. And what I realized is that day, anyways, I've, I've never been proud about not being willing to sort of recognize that I was lost. But I really thought that I knew where I was going. And for this season, in that day, I, I made the funeral by the skin of my teeth. And I'm a super punctual dude. I hate being late. But I was genuinely lost. And at some point, I had to stop and go into a gas station and say, like, I am lost. And I need to know, like, how do I get past the cows and the oak tree to this funeral parlor? And eventually, I found it. Now, those were the directions that I was given. And there's this preliminary feeling. This is sort of the deadness to life, where the lostness becomes a reality. And if there's a pressure point, like you've got to be somewhere, it, it really changes things. But for a great amount of time on the road that day, I just disregarded it because I really thought I knew where I was going. This is sort of like what Paul is talking about here. And in the case of this story, the reason I got that lost was because for a significant amount of time, I wasn't even remotely willing to examine the fact that I could be lost, that, I, that there was a place where I needed correction. And so doing so would have given me the opportunity to get on the right path much more quickly. Now, in a similar spiritual sense, this is what I want to ask you to think about today. Are you on the path to life in Christ? First and foremost, like, are you in him? And if you have answered yes to that, then that's a great thing. You should be thankful that you are alive in Jesus. We'll get to a secondary idea here in a moment. But you are alive in Jesus. If you are alive in Jesus, the question is, are you sharing that life? Have you now become part of the bridge to help people move from deadness to life? So during response time, take some time to consider what path you're on, what road you're on, by, and not just in our response time, but in every area of life. Be willing to regularly examine your soul now and every day that follows. And here's why. Paul, much like me today, is not reminding us of our fallen nature here to beat us up or to make us feel bad. He is trying to remind that those who are dead in their transgressions or those who are alive in Christ but live as if they are dead. He's trying to remind them of what they're living without. So they will desire and more fully appreciate God's offer of living grace. That's why he says this. Most of the hard edges of the Bible are like candy. There's a, there's a wrapper that's a little bitter, but if you can open the wrapper, there's a sweet center that, that makes the tongue vibrate. Here's what he's saying. He's like, hey, we've got to get this transgression and sin stuff on the table because you're never going to get to the sweet center of the candy if you miss this. You're never going to appreciate what I'm about to say. God's incomparable riches of grace, unless you understand why he had to apply those riches and grace to our life. We won't value it when it's presented to us. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you. Be brief, but it's important. Even though the Bible regularly highlights the great reality of our fallen nature, the reason, far beyond friends and family this week, which is incredibly important, the reason we can give thanks that God loves us so deeply, he showed us an incomparable grace to deal with death. There is an incredible thanksgiving truth in this passage. I'll reread Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 to you. But, Paul says, sin, transgressions, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 4 begins with a little word that has a huge implication. You English scholars know the significance of but in the English language, and it's got just as significant a rhythm in the Greek language. In the English language, this word is a conjunction, and it's usually inserted in between two ideas to suggest an unexpected contrast between those ideas. He was about to die, but is alive. Wow, that's the idea of the but. And here, Paul is trying to sharply contrast something. That even though we should have received God's wrath, really, the, 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 the sermon ends here at 3. That's the way God, uh, verse 3. That's what happens if God doesn't act. And that's why action is so important in our lives. He's contrasting that even though we were deserving of something because of the transgression, God, out of his great love for us, has heaped his merciful grace on us when he chose to restore us to him. And this con- contrast distinctly separates Christianity from every other world faith. This is a place why we have a unique reason to be thankful this week. Let me explain. Uh, years ago, there was this little unknown comic. His name was Stephen Colbert. He was like a life influence on me. Super funny dude and really intelligent. And I used to watch his show. It was called The Colbert Report. He's since made big time. And you probably know him now if you know him at all. He runs The Late Show, The CBS Late Show. And before he was that bigwig, he was on a, a popular but much less popular show on Comedy Central, and it was sort of a political satire. And he had some of the greatest interviews all over the map, and a lot of them were human pieces, meaning stories about humanity. And I watched one night, this was in the last year of his run, an interview he had with a religion scholar from Boston University. His name was Stephen Prothero. He wrote a book. It's well worth picking up if you are interested in this idea of religious pluralism. He says, the book is called God is Not One. And the premise of the book was to write against this misinformed cultural sentiment that all religions are really the same thing, uh, which is a very common critique, often used to devalue the role, th- the role of all faith in our world. You know, why, why does Christianity say something different than another religion? And a lot of people will say, well, they don't. They all say the same things. We're sort of like, you know, all believe in the same thing and going up the same mountain. And in his interview, he talked about how the atheist movement, in particular, got it really wrong when they tried to say that all religions teach the same message. When we get to Christmas, we're going to see that's very different. And because of this, they're all equally bad. That's the posture of the atheist. All religion, saying the same thing, is all equally bad. On the flip side of the coin, in today's crowd, where the tolerance movement moves forward, the modern tolerance movements get it just as wrong. And what they say is, uh, because all re- world religions teach the same message, they're all just good. And they all keep us on the same pathway and end us up in the same place. And his book said, if you actually look at the faiths of the world, whether they are formal or informal, remember, everybody's got faith in something whether you prescribe to one of the great religions of the world or you have your own religion you've made up, whether it's a fabricated reality or just self, we're all following a path, taking us up a certain pathway and we'll likely end up at different places depending on what, what road we, we you know, mitigate up the mountain of life. His book was trying to rebut the fallacy in this idea. And what he said was, listen, there's a lot of critiques you can make against faith, but you can't make this one because all of the faiths of the world are very different. And their differences make them significantly unique. And because of this, each distinctly shapes the way a person sees life. He said, it'll be behind me. This was what stood out out to me in the, the dialogue. He said, the major world religions are not just different paths leading up the same mountain. They are actually going up different mountains with different techniques and tools. And then he went on to say, the idea that all religions are the same may seem lovely, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and, and untrue. And he proved his point 
by highlighting how the ideas of sin and salvation, like what Paul talks about here, are distinctly Christian. And that's what Paul is saying in the but. This is the idea of what he's saying here. He's highlighting this terrible thing that exists in the human heart, this deadness. And then he inserts this but, and he says, but let me tell you why this is a different conversation because of what Jesus has done for us. The but in this passage is trying to communicate something substantial to us. Not necessarily in an academic sense, although that has a place in this conversation, like Prothero sought to show us, but in a deep heart way that Christianity gives us something to be distinctly thankful for. Because all of the other religions of the world, here is why this matters. And the systems of the world, they essentially start by saying this. If you want a deep sense of value, if you want a deep sense of purpose, if you want a deep sense of meaning, if you want joy, if you want to matter in my eyes, what the world says is, you got to earn that. you got to start by earning that. We're not against earning things. I'm not against hard work. But I'm telling you, if the fundamental way you see the world is like this, tit for tat, i got to earn my place to have a place at the table, at some point, if you convolute the way you work in the world or the way you raise your children and the way you understand grace in Jesus, that line's going to get blurry and you're going to start to understand your faith in Jesus like this. Your faith in Jesus should shape the work, not the other way around. Everything in our world says... If you want to be something, prove it to me. Even the faiths of the world, they all start essentially with saying, here's a deity, I'm great and grand, spend your life trying to find me. That is not what Christianity says. And this is why God doing this is so radical. Christianity says the exact opposite. It begins not by, by telling you to do something. That comes. It begins by handing you a single truth, like what Paul says here. It says your salvation your value, your purpose, your meaning, your joy. It has nothing to do with you. We don't start the dialogue there. It has everything to do, you're speaking to Jesus with my Father in heaven. And our Father in heaven would say it has everything to do with my Son. And the Son would say it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. It comes by first trusting in and giving thanks for what God has already done for us in Jesus. That's why we as Christians can talk about sin with a smile on our face. Not because we should embrace it, but... Because there is a but. Unlike the core teachings of the other world religions and the systems of the world who will make you jump through hoops for approval, the gospel is not a 10-step plan leading you to find a a fullness in life. That's not where it begins. It is simply the announcement of the good news that Jesus has already made the way for you to have it. That is the posture upon which we should see the world. And I promise you, that will make you a better worker. That will make you a better laborer for the kingdom of God. It will make you a better husband, father, wife, sibling, evangelist, son, daughter, whatever I'm missing here. You will be a better everything when you understand this. Because when you understand this, none of that stuff can shape you positively or negatively. You own the wave. The wave doesn't own you. And the hard part about this is you just have to receive it. This is where this gets hard. We have to be okay as we enter a season of Thanksgiving by saying... I'm going to rest in being thankful and ask God to guide my steps. This is the bedrock of God's gospel truth. And the peculiar contrast of its message gives us something to be very thankful for as it highlights how much we are loved, valued, and cherished by God. If you've come in here today feeling undervalued, undercherished, or not loved, you need to know that that is not wrong. Your God in heaven has said that's not true. But experience my incomparable riches, my grace. So today, we should be deeply thankful that God chose to bathe us in the riches of his grace. But we should know that that came at a cost to him. 
that even though we were dead in our transgressions, God loved us so much, he, he valued us so much, that he left heaven to be here for us. He made a way for those who desire life to have it. There is action behind the thoughts and the emotions of God. And we should give thanks that when we chose to run, God pursued. God didn't dangle a carrot. God pursued us in Jesus. Amazingly, this is a mind blower. Paul tells us God took that which was fallen, redeemed it, and set it at the right hand of Jesus. That's us. He's talking about us. And what he's saying is we have a place of royalty next to the king of the universe. The fallen and the transgressed, when they, when they live in the grace of God and experience Jesus like this, they turn their eyes upon him and trust and obey. They are now royalty in the eyes of God. That's a pretty powerful statement. That's something to be thankful for. It is truly an astounding statement when you ponder that. You are royalty in the eyes of God. That in his grace, when we chose to follow the inclination of our hearts, when it, when it transgressed God, God reciprocates selflessness with generosity and kindness. That's what Paul tells us here. He teaches us, think about this. Here's the root of the gospel reality. When we sinned against God, what we did is we put ourselves in God's place. We, we owned the mantle of what we thought should happen. And it's a very sophisticated way of saying we believed we were God. And consequently, when we believe we are God, we will want to be worshipped like God. We'll want people to see us that way. We'll want to become the, thro- the, the king of our lives. And what ends up happening there, the reason why so many people have a hard time moving from deadness to life, is that once you place yourself at the center of the universe, at God's expense, that's really hard to give that seat up. It's a pretty good place of royalty. Let's be honest, right? You know, I've, I've said this a lot in jokes, but like, it's very hard often for us to disagree with ourselves. We always believe what we say. We're the best advocate we have for everything. You know, you need objectivity in life. And God is object, objective to us. But what happens here is God responds to this in a, in a profound way. Logic says he should have kicked us off the throne and moved on. But in his grace, he says, no, what I'm going to do is actually, I'm going to put Jesus in, our pla- in your place and I'm going to set you free. Think about this. In our sin, we tried to make ourselves God. We put ourselves where only God deserved to be. And God's response was to put himself where we deserve to be on the cross. Mind blower. Completely antithetical to the faiths and the systems of the world. Why does he do this? Well, I'll leave you with this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But, here's why he did this. But, because of his great love for us, for you, God who is rich in his mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I really could have like 11 more points with this message, but I want you to know that I think the best way to end today is to end you with that. And so today, don't let the hard edges of this truth get get past the wrapper, get to the candy. Don't let the hard edges of the truth that we're all sinners drive you from God. Give thanks. Receive the words in the way God intended you to. Let them drive you to him. That's what he wants. Whether it is for the first time or in ways he's making us new, God wants us to turn our eyes upon him and press into him. Trust in Christ for the first time. If you already love him, trust in him more deeply. Ask, does action follow your words? Does the reality of this affirmation in your heart shape the way you live your life? This week, give thanks for the gospel of God's grace in your life. Give thanks for Jesus, for his many graces here at our church, in our lives. Give thanks for who God is and what he has done for us. Live as a child of God and let it lead you to the fullness of God want, that God wants you to have in his son. And as we move into response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the posture of your heart when it comes to being thankful? And what is it you will do about it as we leave this place this morning? Pray with me. 
Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you, God, that you are a good God. Thank you that you, that you are a God who, who is not afraid to have the difficult dialogues with us, but never leaves us on the difficulty. Father, you are a God who unashamedly reveals your will to the world. You tell us what you expect of us, but then in the same breath, you also let us know that you are with us to help us meet those expectations. And so I pray today that we would live within that tension, knowing that we are not actually good enough for you, but in your infinite love, you have made us more good than we could ever have been before you. And I pray that the, the humble reality of that truth would be the sweet taste that you have meant to have it on our mouth, in our mouths. May it be the kind of thing that drives us to want to know you more deeply. May we receive those words as soft and beautiful truths, not truths that harden our hearts and push us away from you. But may we hear them in the way the Apostle Paul intended them and in the, in the way I intended them this morning to encourage us deeply to turn our eyes upon you, to fix the gaze of our hearts on you, and to live this week in an absolute state of thanksgiving for your son. May we experience and see your blessings. Pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in about five minutes,